behind most false teaching, behind most false teachers, and behind most people who embrace false teaching, it's not a problem of the mind. It's a problem of morality. You can bank on it. It's a principle that runs all the way through the Word of God. A man's theology is dictated by his morality. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a study of the book of 1 Timothy, one of the pastoral epistles, letters from the Apostle Paul to pastors Timothy and Titus. We've seen that 1 Timothy deals with church leadership, church government, along with the conduct of a local church. One of the primary concerns the Apostle Paul had related to the apostasy coming into the church, either through fruitless speculations or by deviation from the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we rejoin Pastor Carl, we find that today, now more than ever, there are churches that are leading their congregations down the same road to perdition by false teaching. You know, some churches have a different Jesus. They speak of Jesus Christ just like we speak of them. But Paul says that Jesus they have is a different Jesus. It is a false spirit. It is a different gospel. It is another truth, which is really not the truth. And if the contemporary church understood this, we would be so much better off. Even the church fathers who immediately followed the apostles after their death, they never saw their authority as coming from their leadership. They always deferred in their writings to the scriptures. They always went back to what the apostles said. And the same principle is recognized by the early church and that in the second century, the New Testament canon was formed. They recognized, since so many other letters were being written, that they needed to bring all the letters that had been written together under one book, and so they compiled the canon of Scripture. And in so doing, and accepting some books as authoritative and others as defective, they saw that there was an objective standard that they went by. Now, the word canon comes from a Greek word that referred to a carpenter's measuring rule. It's something, it's a rule by which things are measured. And so the early church saw the need for a rule against which human opinions would be measured. And that rule was the teaching of the apostles. And so only those books that had been written by the apostles and only those books that had been directly commissioned by an apostle like Luke or Mark were the only books that were accepted into the canon of Scripture. The test of canonicity was apostolicity. Was this book written by an apostle or did it have an apostolic imprimatur on it? And the early church understood the principle. And so much of the confusion in the contemporary church, the liberal apostate church, and even amongst the true confessing church, is that we've lost this truth. We have given ourselves, knowingly or unknowingly, to the spirit of the age. And the spirit of the age is that there really aren't any absolutes. And so you cannot pronounce that some things are absolutely true, good, and right. And so we have a generation of spineless preachers with the backbone of a jellyfish who are afraid to stand up and tell their people what is right and what is wrong. And so we have a day when no one ever talks about heresy. 
I mean, when do you hear preachers talking about heresy and false teachers? Very rarely in our day. Why? Because they are not living according to an objective truth. Now, I'm not in favor of doing what the church had done in the 1400s by going on witch hunts for heretics. But as believers in the living word who believe in the absolute authority of the written word, we are to learn it. We are to hold up God's objective standard. And we will learn that we are called to separate from those who persist in error. Now, if you talk about that today, especially with these movements that want to unify everybody in the body of Christ and you stand for something, it doesn't matter if they believe they ordain homosexuals. It doesn't matter what they believe about this and believe about that. We need to love each other. We need to link arms with everybody. You take God's objective standard. You use it as the measuring rule by which those whom you will unite yourself to and some will call you harsh. Some will call you unloving. But you're actually the most loving person in the world because when you have that objective law that God has given in his word and you hold it up before men, it becomes their tutor to lead them to faith in Christ, to deliver them out of the kingdom of wrath into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And so we have absolutely no liberty to teach heteros to discolain. The church is not to teach a different doctrine, a strange doctrine, other than the one found in Holy Scripture. And so Timothy, as a pastor, is to make sure that those who are doing that are silenced. Now, that's the essential character of false teaching. It is a deviation from revealed truth. Secondly, let's consider the disastrous consequences of false teaching. Look now, if you will, at verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure, for Ma- it's, I think it should say from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Now some of these people were occupying themselves with myths and endless genealogies. Now Paul uh, recognizes that this was a common problem. In fact, Titus, whom he also writes a letter to in the New Testament, faced the exact same issue. So in Paul's letter to him, he says, This testimony is true. For this cause, reprove them severely that they may be sound in faith. Not paying attention to Jewish myths. Now, the Greek word is muthos. It refers to myths or fables, and they are Jewish in origin. There were some people whom he will say in this first chapter who wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't know what they were talking about. And there are people who took the Old Testament and they, in essence, allegorized it. We have people who do that today. They say, oh, Genesis 1 through 11. I mean, you don't really believe that God literally created the world in six 24-hour days. You don't believe that there was an actual boat that Noah and all the animals actually got into, do you? Oh, that's not true. That's just mythos. That's myth. That's fable. That's parabolic to teach you some spiritual lesson. 
And Paul knew otherwise. And those false teachers had come into that church. And he said, shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. Now I want you to notice that there are two results of false teaching. First, false teaching results in speculation. It results in speculations instead of faith. Now, apparently, the false teachers were using the Old Testament law, and especially the genealogies, to manufacture all kinds of novelties. I met this fellow out in the parking lot one Sunday after church, and he told me how I'd preached my sermon all wrong. And he opened up that passage of Genesis, and he said, well, this means this, and that means so-and-so. And I'm thinking, where does this guy get this stuff from? And he had taken and allegorized the Word of God. That's what these people were doing, especially the genealogies. And they were taking these new doctrines that were not plainly taught in the Word of God and leading people astray. Instead of answering questions, the false teachers create questions. They were giving rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith now this word translated mere speculation and other translations like the King James is translated they were giving rise to questions the New Living Translation says endless speculations the Jerusalem Bible says irrelevant doubts and this sort of false teaching based on endless, endless myths and genealogies, the allegoration of the Word of God, led to all kinds of speculations. And instead of, of getting the people engrossed in what God said, things that God had plainly said, they were getting people involved in things that God hadn't raised. And so they were not promoting faith, only doubts. Instead of getting people to occupy their minds with, with truth, they were getting them to occupy their minds with speculations. They were not promoting God's saving plan, the administration of God which is by faith. Now the contrast is clear. The purpose of Bible study is to arouse faith. And not to create doubts, questionings, irrelevant speculations as these false teachers were doing. And when the scripture is properly handled, faith is aroused, not speculation. That's one of the litmus tests of a true versus a false teacher. Does his teaching promote faith in the word of God or doubt? Error always encourages the unbelieving to get involved in speculations, whereas sound teaching gets men to believe God for what he has said. Second, I want you to note that false teaching results in controversy instead of love. Now, this Greek word translated mere speculation, questionings, is one of those Greek words that you really can't capture with a single English word. It's like a diamond with many facets. And so other translations like the New King James equally corrects, uh, translates it disputes. Or in the NIV, controversies. Or in the New Century Version, arguments. So on the one hand, you could translate it speculations or questions. On the other hand, you could translate it controversies, disputes, arguments. And what a contrast with verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Now, you really can't miss the reference to faith at the end of verse 4 in love in verse 5 because he is setting before us a double contrast and that false teaching promotes speculation that leads to dissension or division. But true teaching promotes faith that leads to love. And the fundamental difference between the two is what is the authority. When there is no apostolic authority in the church, that is, through the apostolic writings of the New Testament, when the teachings and beliefs of the people of God are not based on sola scriptura, scripture alone, when scripture alone is not the final authority, either because it's been distorted or by ignorance, the people don't know what has been revealed, you will always have speculation, you will always have opinion, you will always have disagreement, you'll always have division, and that's why so many churches are in chaos. I go into some of these churches that believe the Bible and some of the crazy decisions they're making, some of the ridiculous discussions they are having, or some of the opinions that they hold that are so far from the will of God. But God has spoken. He has not started. And when we receive his word, then we have the unity of faith and love, which is God's will for his people. So having affirmed the essential character of false teaching, which is a deviation from revealed truth, and having delineated the disastrous consequences of false teaching, questionings and divisions, Paul now concludes this portion of Scripture by giving to us the fundamental cause of false teaching. Now first we learn that false teaching comes from a dirty Life. That's the fundamental cause of false teaching. It comes from a dirty life. The cause of false teaching in this case, and I think virtually in all cases, as you read the Acts of the Apostates, namely the book of Jude, and as you read Peter's second epistle, the cause of virtually all false teaching is a moral problem. Behind most false teaching, behind most false teachers, and behind most people who embrace false teaching, it's not a problem of the mind. It's a problem of morality. You can bank on it. It's a principle that runs all the way through the Word of God. A man's theology is dictated by his morality. Notice what he says in verse 6. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Now, why have they turned into vain, empty, fruitless discussions? Because according to this verse, these were people who were guilty of straying from these things. And of course, the obvious question would be, straying from what things? Well, it goes back to the nearest antecedent in verse 5. A pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And when men swerve from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, they will wander from the truth into vain or empty talk. And so on the one hand, false teaching emanates from a dirty life. Secondly, right teaching emanates from a clean life. Sound teaching, Paul tells us, is the product of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. In fact, Paul repeats the same truth in verses 18 through 20, which we will examine next time in detail. But let me read it to you. 
This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. What is it, Timothy, that you are to fight for? Well, according to verse 19, he is to hold on to two things. The faith, tepistos, that is not just faith, but the faith, the body of truth that we call the Bible, and a good conscience. He is to guard objectively and subjectively two things. Objectively, he is to guard the faith, the Bible, Objective truth is something you can get your hand on, something you can pick up, something you can see. But subjectively, experientially, he is the guard, he is hold on, he's to hold on to a good conscience. And the two are closely linked, as seen in the example of Hymenaeus and Alexander. We're told in verse 19 that these men have rejected conscience. And so they are shipwrecked in regard to their faith. These people who sinned, who failed to confess and repent of it, fell into shipwreck. Now, we'll talk more about what that means next time. But because they allowed sin to remain on their conscience, they soiled their conscience. And when you live with a soiled conscience, when you refuse to confess and repent of known sin, even as a believer, you can enter into a perilous condition. I've seen people make incredibly foolish decisions that they have regretted for their whole life because they were out of fellowship with God. They had soiled their conscience, and so they easily embraced false teaching. When you have a dirty conscience, you open yourself up to all kinds of error and false teaching because your ultimate teacher, the Spirit of God, who indwells you, cannot lead you and guide you and show you objectively and clearly and subjectively, according to your inner spirit, what is right. And as we will see later in this epistle, such a conscience, Paul says, in the life of an unbeliever, can become cauterized. It can become callous. And a cauterized conscience is entirely insensitive and unable to distinguish what is truly good. And so when we are not right with God, we have chosen to live outside of his protection and we have opened ourselves up to the direction of the evil one. And that's what happened to some of these folks in Ephesus. Now, as we conclude our study this morning... Let me suggest two applications for us to ponder. First, it's not enough to proclaim the faith with our lips. We must live the faith in our lives. It's not enough to profess it with our lips. We need to live it in our daily lives. God calls his people to live according to the objective standard we call the Bible. We are to be distinctively different. Paul told the church at Rome, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that which is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. You see, the reason so many Christians today are having so little impact on the culture is because they are so much like the culture. And one of the reasons so many Christians today are so much like the world is because the world is shaping them instead of the absolute truth of Scripture. And the more we become like the world, the less impact we have on it. 
And friend, if you like to be liked by the world, you will be used very little for Jesus Christ. Because if you want to be liked by the world, you have to live by the values of the world rather than according to the dictates of Scripture. And so Paul is going to say to Timothy in his second letter, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Understand that being criticized and sometimes being even unpopular is an occupational hazard of choosing to live according to the word of God. In fact, you can hardly be a member of this church without experiencing some persecution. But listen, when you choose to live according to the plumb line of Scripture... There are some people who won't like you. And if everybody likes me, I know I'm not doing what I ought to do. Because Jesus said, beware of all men speak well of you. For so they spoke of the false prophets who went before you. Second, as you evangelize the lost, remember that bad doctrine, bad beliefs, usually start with bad conduct. Bad doctrine starts with bad conduct and very often secret sin. As you try to win people to Jesus Christ, never forget the close connection between the intellectual and the moral makeup of man. Many times we share the gospel and we think, well, the biggest obstacle we have in people coming to a true faith in Jesus Christ is an intellectual problem that they have. And nothing could be farther from the truth. The biggest problem is not intellectual, it is moral. Don't miss the connection that Paul makes in this chapter between belief in the Word of God and one's conscience. Your conscience is not your enemy, it is your friend. But some unbelievers, by moral choices they have made, are kicking their conscience to death. And they come up with all kinds of bizarre and crazy beliefs. There's a man who occasionally I go to his place of business to have a certain thing done to my automobile. And over the years I've gotten to know him and I've, I've gotten into many and varied discussions with him about the Lord. And he brings up some of the most bizarre things that he espouses. And many times I will contradict those things lovingly. I will show him how they are intellectually unfeasible. And by the time I'm done, he can't refute the evidence. He says, you know, you're right. But I come back the next time and he's got a whole nother set of issues. And recently I saw him in an entirely different context with another woman whom I learned was his adulterous mistress. And then what I suspected was confirmed. He was not asking those questions out of a sincere and searching heart, but out of a stained, dirty, callous, cauterized conscience. And by his own admission, he's told me the preachers he likes to watch on TV, which according to the word of God, some of these men are false teachers. And he tells me the church that he goes to and his pastor doesn't even believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. And he is a false teacher. And Jesus warned us how moral choices will dictate your relationship to truth. He said, this is the commandment that light is coming in the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his evil deeds should be exposed. 
When a man goes against truth, he will rationalize his moral behavior and his mind will become darkened to what is right. He can become unfeeling, totally unresponsive to the priding of God, the Holy Spirit within his life. And you can talk to some of these people. You can reason with them. You can plead with them. And after you share the gospel with them, they say, I know it's right, but let me tell you what I believe. And they tell you something that is totally false. Because a man's morality will ultimately dictate his theology. And they have kicked their conscience to death. And so they have embraced all kinds of false teaching. As Calvin used to say, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. Now, if you have never embraced Christ as the Lord of your life, where he bears witness to your human spirit that you've become a child of God, where you are not just religious, but you have a relationship with the living God, where you know your sins are forgiven, you have new life and an earnest passion to live holy and to be with God's people. If you've never been born a second time, I invite you to do so today because the Bible repeatedly says today is the day of salvation. Because if you don't receive him today, you might not be able to receive him later. If you say no to him today, your heart will be a little bit harder tomorrow to say yes to him. And if you understand today your need for Christ, if you still understand it, it is only by the grace of God because the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. But God in his mercy wanting to save you has opened your eyes so you can see truth. But there comes a time when God lets those blinders down and you will forever believe a lie. In Jesus' words, he said, the devil will snatch the seed that you may not believe and be saved. Don't say no to him today because you may never again have the opportunity to say yes. Let's bow together in prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you for the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his perfect sinless blood shed at Calvary's cross that paid totally the debt that we owe you. Thank you that you raised him from the dead, declaring to all men everywhere that he is Lord, that you can say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Father, help someone today to call upon his name. Help them to see that you and your word have placed an urgency in the hour. And help them not to become caught up in the standards of this age that have drifted from the word of God. Now, Father, we pray in these months ahead as we open scripture together, as we study these pastoral epistles, that in your grace, as a church, we would be willing to fall in line with what you've said. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program 1TM1, Teaching Sound Doctrine. And that's our goal at Search the Scriptures, to teach sound doctrine. 
Our ministry is based on the Bereans who we are told search the scriptures daily to determine their accuracy. We pray that you join our list of foundation partners who come alongside this ministry and financially support it with a monthly gift of at least $25. Your prayers and financial support are vital to spreading the message of hope and love in Jesus Christ and to teach sound doctrine. If you can help, won't you drop us a line at 877-787-7478 or click the Give button on our website, searchthescriptures.org or using our Search the Scriptures app. Tomorrow we begin a look at the three responsibilities of a pastor and his people as we continue our study of 1 Timothy and Search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures.